So when people ask, uh, what's the, the highest teaching in Buddhism? A lot of times, um, the answer will be uh, teachings on emptiness, on selflessness, teachings on not-self. And in fact, a lot of the ways that awakening is characterized is a penetrating, enduring insight into selflessness. But um, it's complicated. So on the one hand, you have folks who will say, for example, no self, no problem. I think that's even the title of a book. And that is, uh, as far as I can tell, true. But the question is, how much of a problem is the self? That can vary quite widely. Yeah. The self can be more or less problematic, even if we agree, no self, no problem. And what I want to try to unpack in this uh, time, some, some uh, reflections uh, on the theme that, that Gil and Nikki have started tracing out about the, support, the supporting cultivations for uh, deepening insight into the three characteristics. In a way, we have to develop some facility in um, freeing ourselves of the burden of self. But we also actually, quite importantly, need to cultivate a, a relationship with self that is functional. And so there's a line from uh, Leonard Cohen who uh, said, uh, I know your burden's heavy as you wheel it through the night. The guru said it's empty, but that doesn't make it light. We want to understand emptiness, but we also need ways of working when it's not light. Now, the teachings on self and not self are the cause of a great deal of suffering in and of themselves. Uh, on, a, on a retreat, kind of an ear early retreat, I remember we're in a Q&A session and uh, and this one yogi was kind of recounting in very kind of elaborate uh, language and quite stirring language, this kind of insight into not self. 
and uh, the teacher was very uh, kind of approving. And, and I just sat there just like my heart just shriveling with each new detail that she revealed. Uh, because all I could do in that moment was uh, compare myself, you know, and feel a kind of, um, uh, longing to want to know, but also, uh, of course, self is totally bound up in the comparing mind and in the way we relate to these teachings. Now, even though we say, um, or some say that the highest teachings, teachings on emptiness, um, it's really important not to lose sight of the fact that we are, what we care about is uh, suffering and its absence. And uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu said, uh, just to drive home this point, he said, if you are not suffering whatsoever, do you think you care if you have a self or not? The teachings on self and selflessness are uh, pointing us back to now. So this is uh, Sam Harris from Waking Up. Our minds are all we have. They are all we have ever had. And they are all we can offer others. Most of us could easily compile a list of goals we want to achieve or personal problems that need to be solved. But what is the real significance of every item on such a list? Everything we want to accomplish is something that promises that, if done, it would allow us to finally relax and enjoy our lives in the present. Generally speaking, this is a false hope. I'm not denying the importance of achieving one's goals, maintaining one's health, or keeping one's children clothed and fed. But most of us spend our time seeking happiness and security without un acknowledging the underlying purpose of our search. Each of us is looking for a path back to the present we are trying to find good enough reasons to be satisfied now. So, when we approach these teachings, please uh, remember that they're, they're pointing us back to now pointing us back to a way of experiencing now that feels like enough. And when now feels like enough, all of the 
beautiful qualities of the heart come to the foreground. When now feels like enough, there's nothing other to do than to love people. And so what, whatever the mind does with these teachings, just remember they're pointing back to now. Now it's sometimes um, suggested that there's a kind of conflict between uh, self, self-confidence, self-love on the one hand and not-self, uh, anatta uh, on the other hand. And sometimes there's even a kind of elaborate philosophical explanations that invoke relative and absolute as a way to try to accommodate the apparent tension between self-love and selflessness. Uh, but what I, I want to suggest is that there, um, there's no conflict at all. And in fact, self-love may be uh, the precondition for a healthy release into selflessness. Self is not a thing. Not self is not a thing. Self is an experience and not self is an experience. And two experiences don't contradict each other. They're just two experiences. What we want to distinguish is um, self-kindness, confidence, self-love from clinging to self-view. Does that make sense? That's the conflict. That's the conflict. This this confidence or self-love is is quite uh, important and As, as Gil uh, remarked, the, you know, the Buddha, you read the suttas, it appears in every sense to be a very uh, confident person. And this confidence is quite important as we uh, navigate the challenging or disorienting phases of practice. Actually, it, it starts to make the experience of um, 
of anicca, as Nikki talked about, it would make the experience of impermanence um, feel safer. This kind of self-confidence is is um, is it it uh, is a, a powerful stabilizing force, and it, it may it may even be an important factor in what makes a difference between selflessness feeling uh, barren and desolate from experiences of selflessness that feel liberating. Yeah. I'll say more about that. Um, now, th this kind of healthy relationship with the self, the loving side of this equation, is important insofar it's, as it's um, it's how we stay safe for others. Yeah. It's actually how we stay safe for others, is to develop a more and more transparent and loving relationship with the different corners of our minds. And it's been you know, painful for me to see the ways in which insight into selflessness does not guarantee ethical conduct. You know? And it, from my viewpoint, it, it looks like um, that it's, it's a, a kind of integrated loving relationship with ourself that makes harm less and less likely. So we can say that the Dharma grows both in, in terms of, uh, in terms of depth, but also breadth. It grows in terms of the nature of, of awareness, the kind of access to silence and stillness. It grows in depth, but importantly, it also grows in terms of breath, meaning that the Dharma starts to colonize more and more of our mind. And it's that breath that actually helps uh, make us more and more safe for others. In the uh, kind of famous sutta from the uh, Samyutta Nikaya, uh, the Buddha says something, something like, um, she who holds herself dear, she who loves herself, will not harm another. And in my own path of practice, as I um, develop more 
gentleness and care for myself as I see more and more deeply how um, simply I just want to be happy. Um, it becomes less and less possible to forget that in the act of harming another. And so this uh, gentle, loving acceptance of oneself as in our strengths and our foibles is actually very closely linked to our capacity for uh, deep empathy. Jack Engler famously said, um, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. And he He's a psychologist and Buddhist teacher, and, and he's said that, and he subsequently walked back a little bit from that uh, suggestion, but he basically, after, I don't know how long ago he said it, many years, he's basically affirmed that. So this is what he wrote. As a psychologist, Part of my effort is to help people develop capacities that may be underdeveloped or may have been derailed earlier in development. Ego, in this sense, is a positive thing. That's the way I think of it in psychology. But a lot of people who come to me for therapy don't think of ego that way. They think of ego in a spiritual context where it's a bad thing. But talking about ego in this way is problematic. It gets talked about almost like an alternate personality within me that is bad. It gets reified as some part of me that I have to battle with, that I have to transcend. I think spiritual language reinforces a lot of dualistic thinking when we talk about ego that way. Now, instead of self versus other, it's self versus ego. And so the struggle just continues in another guise. Self uh, is a story. Self is a story in a way. The story we tell about the past. And that story can be more or less empowering. That story can be more or less adaptive. The philosopher Dan Dennett said, um, ask the question, what is the self? And his answer was, uh, self is the center of narrative gravity. Self is the center of narrative gravity. And it almost feels like a, it's like a gravitational pull towards some center in our being. 
And we take that in a certain way without looking closely uh, to be the, the center. But the suggestion is that uh, this, what we see is actually more narrative. Now, a lot of Dharma practice is actually beginning to rewrite the story of the self. Story has a bad rap in these parts, you know, right? And uh, that is because it is the wellspring of a great deal of suffering. So it's earned some of its reputation, maybe. But um, one kind of process that we don't do so explicitly in Dharma practice is that we're actually learning to retell the story of our life in light of Dhamma. And so how painful does our history have to be? How painful does our self-narrative have to be? Maybe less painful than we think. And one of the um, central aspects of, of practice is that we are, we're re, rewriting, we're rewriting, we're retelling the story of self. Because we've had uh, so much experience that's only been known through the prism of the kalesas, through the prism of our own confusion. And uh, what we do in our practice is we, we hear some of these teachings, we start contemplating uh, some of the, the Buddha's instructions and we sit down and we close our eyes and we make everything relevant. Everything that arises, all the pieces of our past re-arise. In a certain way, the past is all there is, usually we say the present is all there is, but in a certain sense, this moment is full of nothing but past. And it comes up in many forms as we sit. And it's like, 
we need to see all of it come up because that which we don't see, we can't bless. And we want to see more and more of our life, our past, our patterns, our habits, so that we can bless more and more of it. Yeah. And it's like um, we're, we're touching our memories, blessing them with awareness and love. And so, of course, our, you know, our family history and our, our personal history, our own conduct, uh, our own habits arise. And we're trying to, whatever the meditation object is, we're trying to meet these experiences with the eye of Dharma, Dharma, Dhamma. Yeah. And there's like a process of integration, of gathering up the fragments of self, of starting to tell uh, what, what is a much uh, richer story of the self. Ways of understanding suffering and loss and joy and conceit. Ways of, of digesting our past. And we do this in the present. Through that process, through that process of uh, knowing pain, we become more confident. When pain is kind of vaguely lurking, it has an ominous effect. When it feels half acknowledged, half vague, it has a destabilizing effect on the mind, erodes our confidence. But as we start to bless more and more of our past, we actually feel more confident because there's a sense like we can't be ambushed by our pain in the same way. We have uh, 
less and less to, to hide. We can't be found out. And the heart kind of relaxes. Confidence and self-love unfold in a number of ways. There's, of course, this, um, this community and some of what we learn in Sangha is that we, we actually start to um, see ourselves through the eyes of others. You know, like how, how do others see us? How do they look at us? And we actually start to uh, sense a kind of, um, to know ourselves in a new way. We usually think our real self is like what we do alone in our homes or something, but we actually start to learn a kind of new parts of ourselves in community and to have that reflected back by others to develop this sense of uh, of belonging which is so fundamental to to being human and so it's said that um, the Dharma is like uh, like moonlight and Sangha is like those people who walk out into the uh, splendor of the moonlight together. There's a confidence that develops when we start to trust our path this path deeply. This is a real turning point in practice. Um, in a certain way, there's often, there's often um, a f phase or phases of practice where there's uh, there's just some kind of ambivalence and sometimes we just can't resolve it. We feel compelled in a way by practice. Our heart is drawn in a way. Um, but there's something that's unresolved. There's some ambivalence. And something happens when the heart kind of turns fully towards Dharma. Um, that dr simplifies life dramatically. And it doesn't mean that we become uh, monastics necessarily or devote all of our time to practice. Uh, 
but it means that there's a a deep trust that um, the path of happiness is is a path with heart. And just knowing that we're doing the kind of work that we're not going to regret is powerful. I've spent, uh, spent a few years working in hospice care as a volunteer and um, one of the, the kind of main lessons in that time was um, just how few things matter at the end of one's life. You know, and looking back, how few things really matter deeply. And I know this matters. I have no doubt this matters. And knowing that endows us with a sense of confidence that we may be kind of bumbling our way through this whole thing. I'm doing my best and it doesn't always work out perfectly. And I know this really matters. Whatever comes of it, this really matters. The heart relaxes. I don't know about Buddha nature, but we can ask the question, uh, what's left when all of the pushing and pulling on the moment stops? What's actually here when the gesture of push and hold stops. In that uh, sense of uh, enoughness that I pointed to at the beginning, um, what comes through most clearly to me is a kind of longing not to do harm to others or myself. When that pushing and pulling stops, there's something that feels uh, inherently non-violent. And that heart quality becomes a, a source of, uh, of confidence, of 
sense of dignity, trust. In our, in our ethical conduct, um, we, we usually think about ethics as, as rules, but, um, but more and more they seem, ethical conduct seems like just honoring the architecture of our nervous system when we really start to pay attention to the kind of instant karmic feedback of our conduct, uh, we uh, start to, to want to, uh, to do less harm. And as we feel in deeper alignment with our um, ethical impulses, as we start to feel less and less gap between what we think is right and our behavior, as that gap starts to close, the heart really relaxes. The Buddha talked about the bliss of blamelessness. The mind becomes less and less complicated, less and less encumbered by regret and indecision. And uh, again, there's this sense of, um, yeah, a kind of nourishment of ethicality. There's a confidence that arises out of the, the ripening of equanimity. As, as equanimity ripens, as we <coughs> um, as we feel um, more and more capable of meeting the intensity of being human, the sense that we can be overwhelmed by our inner life starts to fade away. And if you actually unpack many of our fear states, many of our states around self-doubt, if we unpack them carefully, which you can do in the silence, we may be able to see how uh, lurking somewhere in there is the sense life may become too much. I may be overwhelmed by something. And as we develop more equanimity, and the sense of um, we feel, uh, as we can remain free amidst more and more different states, states of body and mind, as we can remain free amidst them, 
the fear of being um, overrun by our inner life uh, diminishes. The fear of being overrun by pain diminishes. And so it feels safer, more confident. Now, all of these developments of confidence, of self-kindness, um, actually pave the way, in a sense, for this insight into anatta. And they do that because um, we could say that the, the self that is loved is easier to relinquish than the self that is hated. The self that is, that is um, judged or hated, the self-harshness, uh, it's really a kind of self-preoccupation. And when, when we're really um, caught in those, those loops of self-harshness, it doesn't feel okay to put it down. It feels like there's urgent work to be done in that realm of self-harshness. It's like we're rearranging and manicuring ourselves in a way, and it all feels very urgent. It's hard to relinquish the self that is hated. But the self that is confident and well-loved, well-cared for, um, there's no threat in putting that down. There's no threat in putting that down. One of my teachers, Shinzen Young, said, uh, just that uh, we we love the self to death. It's not a battle we're doing. We actually affirm the arising of self. So deeply that we know the ground of our self as experience. The author E.L. Doctorow said, um, writing a novel is like driving a car at night. You can only see as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. I saw that and I thought of um, our path. especially retreat practice. 
we can only see as far as the headlights. And that's enough. And so we'll keep going. Don't try to look beyond the headlights. Just stay simple. Stay with what's here to be known in this moment. Just sit for a second. 